Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Uh, please open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy in your New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll be continuing our study today. We've been for the last several weeks in a study of the pastoral epistles, which is the name we give to a series of epistles that Paul the Apostle wrote to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. So we're in 1 Timothy we're picking up where we left off this week in chapter 3. So go ahead and open up there. We'll be starting in verse 14. And as you open there in your Bibles, would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you now our attention. We give you our hearts, our minds, and our lives. During this time, we ask, Lord, that through your word, you would instruct us. Give us your vision for who you've called us to be and what you've called us to be about in the world as your people. So, Lord, we ask that you would instruct us, help us to understand, and, Lord, do a transforming work by your Spirit in our lives today as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this weekend, I just arrived back from Europe. I was there visiting some pastors and missionaries who we partner with, and I was speaking at a conference. And my first stop was in Moldova, where I uh, led a training seminar, and I spoke at a church. And this pastor there in Moldova, he's a longtime friend of mine. And so after I spoke at the church on Sunday, that was a week ago today, then on Monday, he and I both got on a plane. We flew from Moldova to Austria, where we were attending a pastor's conference that I was speaking at uh, for pastors from all over Europe within our church network. So as my friend and I were, we were making our trip from Moldova to Austria, I got a text message from another friend of mine who was also attending the same conference in Austria. And this friend asked if I could pick him up at the airport and drive him to the conference. And of course I said, well, sure, yeah, no problem. We'll be at the airport anyway. I'll pick you up. We'll drive over to the conference together. But then he sent me his flight information, and I saw that his flight was actually arriving at a different airport, which was actually in a different country. So we, we flew into Vienna, Austria. He was flying into Ljubljana, Slovenia. And so I thought for a second that maybe I should tell this guy, you know what, that's a ridiculous thing to do. No way I'm driving to Slovenia just to pick you up at the airport. But then I thought, well, you know, it's only like five hours away, and... And uh, if I go there, I could eat one of my favorite foods. You see, in Slovenia, in all of, which is part of former Yugoslavia, right? So former Yugoslavia, they got this great food there. It's called chevap. So it's like one of my favorite things to eat. It's like grilled minced meat with onions and flatbread. It's really good. Maybe it doesn't sound that great from what I just described, but believe me, it's really good. And it's particular to that region, kind of hard to find outside that region. So I tell my friend from Moldova, I'm like, listen, we got to make a little stop a little detour. We're going to go pick up this guy. It's in Slovenia. It's going to kind of put us out of our way. But listen, it'll be totally worth it because you're going to eat the most amazing food you've ever had in your life. So we get in the car. We drive. And after a couple hours, we finally cross the border into Slovenia. And we pull over into this little town, find a restaurant. And sure enough, 
on the menu of this restaurant, they have this dish. So we order two large orders of this thing called cheva. So I was so excited. I knew my friend, he's going to love this. He's going to change his life. So a few minutes later, though, the waiter brings out our food. And well, it had obviously been microwaved because like, like I said, it comes with this bread. So it was kind of like, have you ever seen like bread that was foamy and had like bubbles on it? I've never seen that. I was like, what is this? And it was soggy and it was, it was gross, guys. Like it was, it was disgusting. So my friend's like, so this is what we came here for. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Well, this is it. So neither of us could even finish it. We were like, this is, this is gross. Sorry. We just paid and left, got back in the car and said, well, we'll just eat someday. I don't care. So one of these, you know, I don't know if you've ever had an instance like this where, you know, you have to explain to somebody, well, listen, like, it's usually not like this. Usually it's a lot better than this. I, I promise. It's usually really good and awesome. Uh, but this one was, an, uh, this isn't how it's usually this bad. Well, this is one of those instances. So we finish our drive, we pick up this guy at the airport, and we made our way to the conference, and we arrived several hours, of course, later than we originally planned, just so we could go out of our way to eat the world's worst chevap. Well, listen, sadly for my friend, uh, this is his only experience eating this food, and it was a really bad one. I, on the other hand, I've had many great experiences with it, and I can honestly say that, yes, the food we got on this occasion was genuinely bad, but it would not be fair to judge all of these foods based on this one bad experience. The bad experience was the exception, not the rule. Now, in the same way, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who've told me about their bad experiences in church. For example, just yesterday, someone left this comment on our church's Instagram. This is a quote. They said, I would love to go to church again. But after all that has happened to me in church, I just can't. Listen, that's, that's sad. My heart genuinely goes out to that person. I know many people whose experience at church has not been very good. Perhaps they've experienced judgmental attitudes. Perhaps they've experienced manipulation or worse. In fact, I'll also tell you this. As a pastor, as somebody who's spent the last 20 years of my life working in churches week in and week out, I can tell you that I personally have had more than what I would say is my fair share of negative church experiences. I could tell you a lot of stories. And yet, just because people have acted badly, that doesn't mean that we should dismiss or reject the entire institution. You see, I remember when I was a young Christian, as a young Christian, I remember finding my way into a church where the Bible was taught simply and straightforwardly, where it was full of genuine and loving people who desired to know God and walk with God. And we pooled our resources to reach out to our community, to meet needs and tell people the good news about Jesus. Friends, that's beautiful. Okay, like the reason I moved to Hungary as a young man was because I visited one summer and you know what I saw? I saw what was happening there. It was a movement of churches that were doing evangelism and discipleship and mercy ministries. They, they were changing people's lives and impacting communities. And I thought to myself, wow, this is something that's worth giving your life for. This is something that's worth investing everything that you have into because this is beautiful. And over the last 20 years of being intimately involved in church, I can tell you honestly, I have seen an overwhelming amount of beauty and goodness in the church around the world. 
And it's interesting because I would say this, that in the past just 15 to 20 years, the main questions that people are asking about Christianity in the culture have changed. Even if you look at books from like 15, 20 years ago that talk about like what we call apologetics, which is giving a defense of Christianity, you'll notice that the books from 15, 20 years ago and and beyond that, they're all dealing with the same question of this. People are asking the question, is Christianity true? But I would argue that in the past 15, 20 years, the discussion has shifted and most people in our society are no longer asking, is Christianity true? The first question they're asking is this, even if Christianity is true, is it good? Is it good? I believe the answer to both of those questions is yes. Now listen, in the Bible, God shares with us his vision and his design for what the church is meant to be, how it is designed to function. And so although some people, including myself, have had negative experiences in church, it's important to remember that those bad actions of people don't get to define what the church is and what the church is about. You see, in our, in our text today in 1 Timothy, what we're going to see, we're going to see God's vision for the church, what it can be, what it's meant to be, and, and what it means for us and for our lives personally. So the title of today's message is The Church of the Living God. The Church of the Living God. And here's what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Here's our summary statement that will be our outline for this passage. The church is God's creation which he loves, and through which he works to carry out his mission in the world. So the church is God's creation, which he loves, through which he carries out his mission in the world. So let's take that sentence, we'll break it down, and we'll use it as our guide to study this passage. So the first part of the sentence, the church. Look at what Paul the Apostle writes in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, starting in verse 14. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Remember, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, who at the time of the writing of this letter, Timothy was leading a large and influential church in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, by the time that Timothy became the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the church had been around for many years at this point. But the reason why Timothy was asked to take over the leadership of the church at this time is because false teaching and unhealthy practices had taken root within the church. They had crept in and taken root in the church. And Timothy had been commissioned, asked, recruited to come and step in to correct these problems, these false teachings and these unhealthy behaviors, and kind of to right the ship, to set order, to make things right, and really basically to save this church. You can imagine what a huge and daunting task this would have been for Timothy to take on, especially considering the fact that as he's called to right this ship and make things right again, many of the people that he's sent to work with, they didn't respect his leadership, and they didn't want to change what they were doing. Here's your job. Go tell these people to change what they're doing. Oh, okay. Do they want to change what they're doing? No, not at all. Are they going to listen to me? Probably not, right? That's your job. Okay, so now in chapter one of this letter, this is why Paul wrote to encourage Timothy personally in his calling from God as a leader. 
And then starting in chapter 2, what Paul has been doing is he's been giving Timothy practical instructions about how to lead the church. He's been telling Timothy what things need to be done, what ought to be done in the church, and also what kind of things must not be allowed to take place in the church. And then in chapter 3, in the first half, which we looked at last week, Paul talked about leadership in the church, what it should look like, the character of the people who would be given the title of leader in the church. And now here in chapter 3, starting in verse 14 and 15, Paul pauses for a moment. He pauses for a moment to remind Timothy, kind of to zoom out and remind him of the big picture. Why is he telling him all this stuff? Why is he giving him these instructions? Here's what he says. He says, listen, I hope to come to you soon uh, in person, but I'm writing these things to you in case I delay so that you'll know how people are to behave themselves or conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. In other words, normally, Paul would have said these things to Timothy in person when he came to visit him. And yet Paul wasn't sure when he would have the opportunity to get down to Ephesus next. So he decided, you know what, instead of waiting to tell you, I'll just put it in writing and I'll put it in a letter and I'll send it to you instead. And aren't you glad that he did? Because as Paul picked up that pen, the Holy Spirit moved upon him to inspire these words, not just for Timothy's sake, but for the sake of Christians at that time and throughout history up until this present day. Paul has been telling Timothy what people should and should not do in the church. But here he stops and he says, but remember, Timothy, the reason behind all of these things is because of what the church is. Let me, let me put it this way to you. What the church does is a direct result of what the church is. That's the point of what Paul's about to tell us. What the church does is a direct result of what the church is. So what is the church? Well, that brings us to the next part of our sentence. The church is God's creation, which he loves. Look at what it says in verse 15, the second part there. It says, the church is what? The household of God, the church of the living God. Now, these two statements speak about the church's identity, what the church is. By referring to the church as the household of God, that tells us that the church is not a building that you come to, but the church is a group of people to which you belong. A household in the ancient world was a large family. And we see this picture throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that God is building a family. He's the Father, and when you put your faith in Jesus, you get to become a child of God. You become an heir, a member of the household, part of the family of God that is being built. Now, one thing this tells us is that Paul's instructions here in 1 Timothy were not just for the Ephesian church only. In other words, they weren't just like localized instructions for that particular church, but they're universal principles which apply to everyone who is a member of the household of God. Now, by referring to the church, again, as the household of God, it also describes the kind of community that we are called to be as those who have been saved and redeemed by Jesus. A household is a place of warmth, a place of refuge, a place of acceptance, love, protection. 
It's a place of mutual encouragement. A win for one member of the household is a win for the entire household. A loss for one member of the household is a loss for the entire household. We treat each other with love and respect as brothers and sisters who have God as our father and as the head of our household. This reminds me of something that says, for example, in Psalm 68, where it says this, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. How does God do that? How does he take care of widows and set the lonely in families? Well, he does that by bringing them into this new community, the household of God that he is building. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. And one of them, Peter, he says to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will happen to us? And Jesus says to him there, he says, listen, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, yes, it may cost you something to follow me, but listen, it'll be worth it. Not only in eternal life, but also in this life. Because as you follow me, you don't just get salvation for your soul, but you know what you get? You get to become part of this new family that God is building, the household of God. Not only are we part of the household of God as believers, but we are also the church of the living God. Now, we use that word church pretty frequently, right? We're going to church, we do church, whatever we say. But the Greek word that's translated church is the word ekklesia, ekklesia. Now, that's not a particularly religious word in the Greek language. It really just refers to an assembly or gathering of people for almost any purpose. So it's an assembly, a gathering, a congregation. But here's why the word matters. Well, first of all, it matters because, again, this word does not refer to a building. It also refers to a group of people. And here's why the word is so incredibly important. Uh, and, and this is why. Because this is the word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel. They are called, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they are called the Ecclesia of Israel. They're called God's congregation, which is the word Ecclesia in the Greek translation. So in other words, by calling us as followers of Jesus, by calling us now Ecclesia, what it expresses is that we are the continuation. We are the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing throughout history of building a people who are called out from among the nations, set apart to know him and belong to him and to show his glory to the world. That word ecclesia is used in the New Testament to refer to both the global body of Christians worldwide and it's also used to refer to local congregations of believers, gatherings of believers in specific places. And it is primarily in those local expressions of the church where we get to live out and experience the particular functions of the church. You know, sometimes you hear people say things like, well, as a Christian, I have a personal relationship with God. Therefore, what do I need the church for, right? It's my relationship with God. It's me and him, just the two of us, right? Or somebody might say, well, I'm part of the global church, 
So I don't need to be part of a local church. Well, neither of those statements accurately reflects God's vision of the church. I hope you are clear on that, right? Neither of those statements accurately reflects God's vision of the church. In order to experience the benefits of being part of the church, how it's designed to function, what God has designed it to do in your life, you have to choose to participate in a local congregation. In order to contribute from the gifts that God has given you, then you have to participate in a local congregation. In other words, by design, Christianity is a contact sport, okay? It's, a, it's not a solo endeavor. The Bible tells us that the church was not just something that like the early Christians came up with as a good way to organize themselves. No, the church is something that was invented, dreamed up, designed, and organized by God. In Matthew chapter 16, for example, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the book of Acts, we see how God brought the church into existence, birthed the church on the day of Pentecost by the move of the Holy Spirit. It says that the Lord then added to the church. So he birthed the church, then he added to the church daily those who were being saved. Later on in the book of Acts, we see how God spoke to people in a particular church in Antioch and called them to go and preach the gospel and do what? Start more churches. Then the Holy Spirit inspired writers like Peter, Paul, John to write letters, not to just to individuals, but to churches. In 1 Peter, we're told that Jesus dwells in the midst of the church. Jesus not only dwells in the midst of the church, Jesus identifies himself with the church by calling the church his body here on earth. But even more than that, he says that the church isn't just his body that he identifies with, it is his bride whom he's obsessed with and who he loves. That's how much Jesus likes the church. Well, if you like it so much, why don't you marry it? And Jesus says, maybe I will, right? At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus does exactly that. Like, in other words, Jesus is pretty into the church, okay? Like, he's super into it. Like, so when you say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, Jesus would be like, what, seriously? I'm not sure that it works that way, bro. Like, I love the church, Jesus would say. You see, Jesus, he doesn't love the church because he doesn't, he's not aware of its flaws, right? Like if, if we would inform him about the church's flaws, maybe he would rethink things a little bit, right? No, not at all. He's absolutely aware of all the flaws, of all the wrong things that people do in the name of the church and in his name. And it grieves him to the heart. And he promises that he'll deal with it. And yet he hasn't given up on the church. He hasn't written it off. He hasn't abandoned it. He hasn't moved on. And neither should we. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told that Jesus is actively working to cleanse the church. In other words, rather than rejecting us because of our flaws, Jesus is working to remove those flaws and make us more beautiful. So if you want to be somebody who shares the heart of God, right? somebody who loves what God loves, well, just a tip here. God loves the church. And so should we. So that's the church's identity. But that brings us to the next question. What is the church's purpose? And that, that brings us to the last part of our sentence. You see, the church is God's creation, 
which he loves, and through which he works to carry out his mission in the world. Paul tells Timothy and us at the end of verse 15 what the church's purpose is. He says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, what do those things do? Well, a pillar, think about it. A pillar holds things up. That's what it does. Lifts things up, holds them up, elevates things. A buttress gives stability and protection. So the purpose, one of the purposes, one of the roles of the church in the world is to do what? To protect and to proclaim God's truth. Protect and proclaim God's truth. We live in a world, right, where things are constantly being redefined, depending on, you know, your culture. There have been efforts, of course, in our culture to redefine marriage, to redefine what is a man, what is a woman, issues of morality, have changed things which formerly were considered immoral are now considered moral. Things which were formerly considered moral are now considered immoral. Things which in the past were against the law are no longer against the law. Things which used to be legal are now illegal, right? So things are changing all the time. Now, it isn't all bad. Sometimes it's for the good, right? Laws have existed in the past, which, were, which we would say are biblically unjust, and needed to be changed. But the point is this. We live in a world that seems to always be trying to figure it out. The sticks are always moving. Things are always shifting. And there's pressure on every institution in society, including the church, to always give in and adjust and change according to whatever is the popular opinion of the day, even if it means changing and forfeiting your long-held beliefs and convictions. But the church is not allowed to do that. Do you see? The church is not allowed to do that. By design, we're not allowed to do that. Part of the church's job, the church's purpose, as we see here, is to be the buttress of truth. Rather than being tossed to and fro by every wave of cultural opinion that blows through, the church is to be a stable presence. One which believes and holds to the same things over time that stands upon the truth of God's word unwaveringly. And what that means is that in every given society and in every generation, there will be things that Christians hold to and believe which are unpopular and countercultural. Now, those things will change in different generations, right? The, the issues that we hold to that are countercultural in one generation or in one society, in one part of the world or another, are going to be different depending on the situation, that time, and that place, but they will always exist. And that's because as Christians, we don't take our cues from society. We take our cues from the unchanging word of God. Not only are we to protect the truth, but we're also to proclaim the truth, just as a pillar elevates, lifts something up. In the same way, the church is called to elevate and lift up the word of God, proclaiming God's truth in the world. So remember the church in Ephesus where Timothy was serving, their problem there is that there were false teachers in the church who were teaching things that were contrary to the gospel and contrary to the clear teaching of the scriptures. And so it was important for Paul to remind Timothy that one of the key purposes of the church is to protect and to proclaim the truth. Not to change it, not to tweak it, not to update it, but to protect it and proclaim it. 
And what was the specific truth that Timothy needed to protect and proclaim there in Ephesus? Paul tells us in verse 16, look at what he says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And what you'll notice over and over in 1 Timothy is that Paul gives these short little summaries of the gospel. He says, here's a summary of the true gospel. And each of them has its own little nuance and focus and, and things like that. This is one of those. He gives another summary of what the true gospel message is. So when he says here, this is the mystery of godliness. Understand that a mystery in, in the Greek sense is something which was formerly hidden but has now been revealed, in this case, through Jesus. So what is the mystery of godliness? This thing which is the secret, is the key, which has now been revealed in Jesus. Well, first of all, it is that God was manifested in the flesh. Listen to that phrase. God was manifested in the flesh. Well, that says a lot. It tells us that Jesus was not just another good person, not just another good teacher in the line of many teachers throughout the ages. No, but Jesus was something more than that. He was God come to us in human flesh. He was vindicated, it says, by the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus did something wrong and needed to be vindicated. What it means is this, that Jesus truly lived a sinless life that he was able to be the perfect sacrifice that we needed in order to take the judgment for our sins, in order to redeem us. And the fact that Jesus was capable, that Jesus was truly sinless, it was proven by the fact that, as the Bible says, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So because Jesus was raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven, you can be sure, in other words, that's the proof, that his death for our sins truly accomplished what he said it would to provide forgiveness of sins. Next, he was seen by angels. Now, this is most likely a reference to Jesus' resurrection, especially because of where it comes in this progression. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John all tell us that angels were present at the resurrection of Jesus. Next, it says that he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. After Jesus' resurrection, he commissioned his disciples, his followers, to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of what he had done and that salvation was available to those who would receive God's grace by faith, by putting their trust in what he did to save them. And then it says he was taken up into glory. Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father from whence he will one day come again. As you read verse 16 in your Bibles, you'll notice this thing. Have you noticed that the text is indented slightly? Now, the reason for that is because what Paul is writing here is actually a quote from a early Christian hymn, a song that would be sung in the early church, which these people there in Ephesus would have been familiar with. It was a popular worship song of the time. And Paul's saying, hey, you know that popular song you guys always sing? That's a great summary of the gospel. 
Now, in contrast to that, look at what Paul says next, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything that God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Here, Paul is calling out some of the specific false teachings that were being taught in Ephesus, which Timothy had been sent there to deal with and set right. He gives some details about these teachings there in verse 3. He says that some of the things they were teaching, they were forbidding people from getting married. They were requiring abstinence from food. We call this asceticism. It's where you withhold things from yourself as a way of thinking that therefore you will be more spiritual. Now, essentially, what these people were doing was they were making up new rules and declaring that if you didn't keep their new rules, then you couldn't be saved. Conversely, they said that if you did keep their rules, then you could earn God's blessings and you could even earn your salvation. And Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 1, that this is not only a bad message, but it is a false gospel. And not only is it a false gospel, it is actually demonically inspired. Demonically inspired. It's demonic in origin and nature because... It is designed to deceive people and to keep them from coming to God, confessing their sins and seeking his grace by encouraging people instead to rely on their own strength rather than confessing their need for God's grace. Listen, certainly there are many biblical truths which the church needs to protect and proclaim. But this is the chief amongst them, the most important, that salvation is not something you can earn, but it's something that can only be received by trusting in what Jesus did for you. In other words, the biggest deception that the devil tries to get people to buy into, the biggest deception that the devil brings into the world is this, that you're good enough on your own and you don't really need Jesus because you can save yourself. Listen, Satan's primary tactic is not to like get everybody smoking crack and listening to heavy metal music, okay? That's too obvious. He's a lot smarter than that. Come on, listen. All he has to do to destroy someone's soul and seal their fate is just convince them that they're good enough on their own. And isn't that kind of our default thing? Like we tend to think, I'm a pretty good person. If you can just get people to think that they're good enough on their own, that'll be enough to seal their fate and destroy their soul. One of the things God uses the church to do in order to carry out his mission in the world is this, to protect and proclaim the truth. And the primary truth, which we're called to protect and proclaim, is the true message of the gospel. You see, if you survey all the religions and philosophies out there in the world, what you'll realize is that they break down into basically two ways of approaching God. There are really only basically two ways of approaching God. The one approach says, if you live a good enough life, and if you follow certain rules, then God will bless you, and he'll take you to heaven when you die. That's called salvation by works. 
The other approach says this. You're saved, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. You're a sinner saved by grace by resting upon Jesus. Now think about those two systems in terms of weakness and strength. In the first system, God doesn't need to do anything for you. He just gives you the law, says follow this. And the way to be saved is by you being strong enough. If you can be strong and try hard and pull yourself together and be good and do what you gotta do, then you can save yourself. That's what man-made religion is always about. It's about glorying in your own strength and ability. But then there's the gospel. The gospel. And in the gospel, God comes down to us. He takes on weakness by becoming one of us, submitting himself to death on a cross in order to provide a salvation for us that can only be received by admitting your weakness, by confessing that you cannot save yourself, that you're a sinner who needs to receive grace. And with the true gospel, you're not trusting in your own strength and abilities to save yourself, but you're admitting your weakness, putting your trust in Jesus' strength and his ability to save you. That's the true gospel. And it's by believing that gospel that you can become a child of God and a member of the household of God, the people of God, for whom Christ died, who he is raising up, who he has called to be his body, his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece in the world, the body in which every member is strengthened and in which every member has a role to play in protecting and proclaiming God's truth to the world so that more people can come to become children of God by putting their trust not in themselves, but on Jesus and what he's done to save us. So in light of these things, may we all the more embrace and fulfill our identity and our calling to be the church of the living God. The church is God's creation, which he loves, and through which he works to carry out his mission in the world. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.